The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. The Dow loses 500 points and the S&P posts its first four-day losing streak since February, while Europe's Stock 600 has its worst day since June on steep losses for banks and travel stocks. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson prepares to impose a fresh set of restrictions, including a 10pm pub curfew and a possible U-turn on returning to work. Beijing has accused Washington of bullying tactics and hooligan logic in the TikTok negotiations. Uh, amid news, the Chinese government is likely to, or unlikely actually, to back the deal with Oracle and Walmart. President Trump says he'll nominate a Supreme Court replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Saturday after NBC sources learn he met with Judge Amy Coney Barrett at the White House. Good morning. Let me take you to what we saw on Wall Street yesterday as we take stock of some of the selling we're witnessing on stock markets at this point. A real reversal has uh, been occurring on Wall Street as we've now suffered a four-day losing streak for the S&P and the Nasdaq. In terms of the percentage drops, I mean, down 1.8%. It is a fairly decent sell-off on the Dow. The market was, in fact, even weaker intraday. We saw selling to the tune of about 900-odd points at one stage for the Dow. We've not seen losses to that extent since really back Back in June. So the market uh, ramping up the acceleration of selling at this point and 500 points being stripped off the Dow by the close. The S&P tracking weaker and you can see the Nasdaq also tipping into the red. So following the, the general mood music, however, losses much more contained. It was a wide dispersion of stocks that were really under pressure. If you look at the constituents that moved the, the major markets, the Dow it was United Health that had the most negative impact. For the S&P, it was Johnson & Johnson. And for the Nasdaq, it was Facebook. And typically, we've seen usually one or two major stocks have the most bearing on these indices. So that was a little bit different as we saw three different stocks in, uh, having an implication for those major indices. In terms of the technology performance Facebook, I mentioned having a big hit, and you can see the social media giant trades down 1.7 percent. But there were patches of green, and these are the, the COVID stocks, uh, the parts of the economy that have done okay during lockdowns and restrictions. And again, as we start to uh, look at the potential for fresh restrictions in the UK and also in Europe, that mood music just sweeping across on various markets. You could see it was Microsoft, Apple, Netflix that picked up some of the activity. However, Alphabet reversing. And don't forget, if you look at Facebook and Alphabet. Those are the two stocks that were always uh, more exposed to the advertising market. So if there is a turn in consumer uh, demand and consumption, it's those areas that may be impacted. So very much like the early days around coronavirus, these were the outperformers, Jeff. Karen, I'm going to say something here, and I think it may be slightly controversial, but I'd welcome any feedback our audience wants to give us uh, on this. And I hear what you had to say about the Dow, but to be honest, I don't think it was that bad. Given the tone of the session through most of the day, the fact that by the close of trade, we actually saw this acceleration of buying in the NASDAQ to the end of the trading session, and the, the fact that we only saw the S&P offer, what was it, a little more than 1% at this point, 
um, I don't think was that bad at all, given how poorly the European markets uh, performed here. And I guess, you know, there's a host of obvious reasons why the markets are nervous at the moment. The pandemic, growth worries, stimulus delay, central banks on hold at this point. And it seemed if you look at that uh, cacophony of different reasons for people to get nervous about the markets, to my mind, it had to be really the, the pandemic that was the key issue and the rising rates in Europe. Because when you look at these European closes, boy, were they ugly. The FTSE down 3.3%. The Zetradax down 4.3%. I think Deutsche Bank was a big factor in that story, obviously related to this FinCEN issue. The uh, CAC down 3.7% and the SMI down uh, 2%. Um, Let's just have a quick look at where there was uh, a lot of pain in the United States. And that was obviously in the airlines. Uh, Southwest Airlines off uh, 5.8%. Delta Airlines off 9.2%. American Airlines down 7.4%. So where there was the selling, and again, just to reiterate the point, Karen, I think it was largely focused on those stocks that are seen to be incredibly vulnerable to uh, a reimposition of lockdowns around the pandemic. Um, and for the, for the growth stocks, it seems to me that by the time we got to the close of the session here, there was almost uh, a buyer for every seller, Karen. In some ways, I think I disagree with you a little bit. I feel like the Nasdaq has certainly been stripped from some of the higher ranges. The fact that we're what now down 10 odd percent and sure we didn't see as much in session, but I feel as though there has been some violence in the trade on the Nasdaq. We will pick up the conversation in just a minute and talk specifically to about European markets. But let's get a few more voices in because speaking to CNBC, Allianz chief economic advisor, Mohamed El Arian, expressed his concern over how equities would rebound from the sell off. I worry a lot more that for a long time, Becky, we have been powered by liquidity, by technicals, by liquidity conditioning. We have decoupled from fundamentals a long time ago. So fundamentals would not get the laggards to catch up. And you're seeing this on the banks today. Well, always interesting to hear what Mohamed El Arian has to say here. Jay Powell, big focus today, of course. Uh, he will uh, appear before this uh, Financial Services Committee. This is the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, the Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell says the US economy is showing marked improvement, but still has a way to go before reaching its pre-COVID levels. Uh, this, uh, according to the remarks that have been released ahead of this appearance uh, in front of the uh, House Financial Services uh, group later today. Powell will tell lawmakers the Fed is committed to using all of the tools at its disposal to help the US economy rebound from the coronavirus outbreak. Last month, uh, the Fed announced it will keep rates on zero until inflation ticks above its usual 2% target. You know, Karen, I, I listened to um, the program ahead of us this morning, um, and it was very interesting uh, hearing Paul Sandu on there from BNP Paribas, basically saying, look, investors are going to have to just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I thought that was a, a lovely line that encapsulated some of the cross currents right now that investors are going to have to work with. We know we're in a seasonally weak period for the stock market. All 11 S&P sectors uh, closed in the red uh, through the trade yesterday. But um, 
there are still opportunities, clearly. And I, I, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, maybe the reason or part of the reason that that Nasdaq steadied to the close yesterday is that increasingly people have got this strategy in their heads where they see technology as the banker. Technology has now replaced the bond market as an area where investors feel at least they've got some growth and they've got some security going forward because these are business models about the future. And if that future includes more working from home and more lockdowns, that obviously looks a whole lot more interesting than owning an airline stock or a hotel stock at the moment, it seems. Yeah, a few points there, Jeff. Uh, and clearly what we saw at the beginning of this crisis, the market moved very swiftly into a few winners. It feels if we're talking about more restrictions, those winners come back into the mix again. We may not like the multiples that they're trading on, but uh, they may be the only game in town. As, as we talk about behaviours that we've seen with lockdowns and restrictions just come back and be extended a little bit more. I think at this point, some of the market were thinking, well, we start trading those reopening of economy themes, you know, the, the stocks that have been left behind. But that's not what's happening as we debate this second wave. I think investors are going right back to the first wave trades. The other point I make about uh, your comments around feeling uncomfortable, the reality is a lot of people don't like feeling uncomfortable. They like to go for comfort. And that's a problem at this point as you look at the volatility that has returned to the markets, uh, particularly I think uh, in technology stocks where you have got that slightly uh, deeper pullback of 10%. The other key index I would point you to where it's very uncomfortable territory is the FTSE. It has completely broken ranks with what you've seen on Wall Street. Uh, you know, the, the trade has taken us right back to about May levels with what you saw in terms of the sell-off yesterday, taking us back to the lower ranges. The, the better performers here remain the DAX. And this is very much, much like the trades we're talking about on Wall Street, the ones that have been performers of late. And when it comes to European stock markets, it has been that German uh, DAX that has been one of the better outperformers. So I dare say that investors at this point may not like the pricing that might pay up a little bit more, but they will go after very similar trades that we've seen from the very, very beginning. Um, in terms of what we are missing at this point, Jeff, I, I think it was always going to be the case that this window would be challenging. You know, we set the scene last week, beginning of last week, that we had a Fed meeting, then not much more until after the election, unlikely to get any more stimulus. And, and that's a message that's been reinforced over the weekend as well. So, so what do markets have to trade on? Just a lot of negatives really around coronavirus. Yeah, I think you make a fascinating point uh, about the FTSE. I mean, the problem with the FTSE, it's a bit like whack-a-mole, isn't it? Every time uh, it has the temerity to suggest that it might firmly vault that 6,000 level, it gets punched in the face. And uh, yesterday was all about the banks, of course. And if you're an index that uh, has a lot of banks in, inevitably, you're going to have some problems on a day when the banks do very poorly around that FinCEN story. And quite frankly, a lot of the companies in the FTSE are just in the wrong sectors right now. So if you're looking for pure access to the UK growth recovery, then you're better off um, combing the 350 or the 250. And quite frankly, if you're looking for growth in technology, then maybe the UK market's not the place to be at all at the moment. In fact, maybe none of the European markets are the place to be for that at this stage. But let's have a look at the opening calls then. What have we got in prospect for the day ahead? Well, the FTSE uh, looks like it'll gain uh, about 40-odd points 
That's the early indication. The DAX up 126, the CAC called up 47, and the FTSE MIB called up about 162. When we look at the legacy out of Asia at the moment, what's interesting to me, Matt Taylor, is that we see both the Kospi and the Tyx uh, a little bit weaker than the rest of the Asian markets that are down. Um, that's surprising given the Nasdaq recovery, because those two indices would suggest to me technology in Asia, and yet they seem to be doing the worst. Yes, South Korea, in fact, uh, doing the worst, down by about more than 2% now. And we are seeing the selling pressure intensify there in the afternoon. More on that in a moment. But weak right across Asia, with the exception of the New Zealand market, closing up by about six-tenths of 1%. But the size of the declines, fairly mixed. Japan out for a public holiday again today. China markets just resuming after the lunch break. Shanghai down by about a tenth of 1%. Hong Kong down by around about a third of 1%. But banking shares are leading the declines again today. HSBC shares now sitting at a 25 five-year low, off by about 2.7%. And South Korea, as I mentioned, the laggard in the region today. Concerns over coronavirus cases across the globe dragging that market down. The Korean government also announcing a fourth budget to mitigate the downturn. But we are seeing the KOSPI now weaker by about 2.2% in the afternoon trading session. Karen and Jeff, back over to you. Thank you very much, Matt. All shares in HSBC and Standard Chartered continue to slide in Hong Kong. It follows yesterday's sharp declines on the back of the so-called FinCEN files, which alleged the banks moved billions in suspicious funds over almost two decades. Europe's banking index closed down almost 6%, hitting a four-month low following the leaks as well. U.S. lenders came under pressure during the session with the Suspicious Activity Reports, or SARS, claiming to show J.P. Morgan and BNY Mellon facilitating a combined $550 billion worth of potentially fraudulent transactions. Tom Kind joins us, who is the director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI. Tom, thank you very much for your time this morning. And what we saw yesterday, very aggressive selling in the banks, despite uh, many of the lenders themselves claiming that these are historical issues. What changes from here? Do you think we see large-scale regulation being altered or is it just largely going to be seen as something that's been dealt with already? I suspect it will be seen as something that's been dealt with. It's striking that any statement from any uh, bank on this topic is we follow all rules and, and regulations. Uh, if you think about the journey that banks like HSBC have been on over the last five years, they've had you know, government appointed monitors in the building. They've invested heavily in compliance systems, uh, technology. Uh, I think if these stories do have any legs, uh, they are they are legacy stories. I think we have to ask ourselves the question, though, if everyone is applying all laws and regulations, what does that say about the system we're operating? Uh, it would suggest that the system is the one that should be marked down, not the banks themselves. Tom, the allegations yesterday triggered a, a memory of a conversation I had a couple of years back with someone who works in the markets and who said to me, effectively, you know, sometimes you see these trades or the, these um, transactions take place and you do think that it might be suspicious, so you flag them up. But the reality, if you don't take the business, they just go somewhere else to one of the other institutions. And that's a little bit of what's happening, isn't it? That we've just got a system where th there may be a problem, but it's really up to the regulators to investigate and follow up on, not the banks. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the issue, right? Uh, suspicion is subjective. Um, and what you think is suspicious, I might not think uh, is suspicious. And so, yes, you're right. Uh, there is a kind of backside covering issue here, which is if I file a suspicious activity report, I've done my thing, I can move on with whatever trade I'm trying to, to do. Um, 
you know, millions of uh, SARs are filed with FinCEN every year, half a million are filed with the National Crime Agency in the UK every year, and law enforcement authorities just can't react. They can't look at all of those. Uh, so we've kind of created, a, we're, we're still running a system that was built 25 years ago when it took five days to clear a payment, but yet now money is moving at the touch of an app or a button. So the system, uh, as I say, I think is what we need to be looking at here, uh, let, more than uh, the banks themselves. Um, hang on a second, Tom. It, it's not that straightforward, is it? We we can't let the banks off the hook. I mean, they have the know your customer protocols. It's necessary that the loan officers or whoever's dealing with a potential new customer work fairly methodically through the protocols. Um, they are the first line of defence. They are the gatekeepers. Uh, surely we can't abdicate their responsibility off to uh, the um, underfunded, um, thinly staffed, quite often, regulators who are given the task of um, casting their eye across a multi-trillion dollar uh, uh, business. No, no, I think, uh, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not an apologist to the banks. I, I spent 20 years at JP Morgan and I've, I've seen this all from the, from the inside. So definitely not an apologist for the banks. I think my point is that uh, it's when I say the system uh, needs to be reformed, I'm not just talking about the fact that the National Crime Agency doesn't have, a, have enough uh, staff. I mean, it's just worth bearing in mind here. These stories took 100 odd journalists um, 18 months to trawl through. Uh, the National Crime Agency has about 100 people looking at suspicious activity uh, reports and they get 500,000 um, a year. So I think what I would like to see is much more collaborative working between those that have the useful information, law enforcement, uh, and those who have the, the data, the source data that one can look at, i.e. the banks. And let's figure out together what looks suspicious rather than uh, leaving the banks to figure that out, always figure that out themselves. Of course, they need to know who their customer is. They need to know where funds are coming from. They need to know who beneficial owners are. All of that has to be in place. Absolutely. Um, but I think we should be taking this moment to say, let's look at the system. Tom, a lot of the um, uh, entry points for this kind of activity appear to be in the offshore banking operations of many of the uh, the banks that we're talking about that have been cited here. Um, is it necessary, do you think, for us to go further down the road on regulating this particular part of the banking industry? And, and given that uh, uh, London um, has such a key role in this, uh, should we see even further tightening of restrictions on money flows from this part of the system uh, through the UK? It seems that in spite of what Tony Blair said in the past or David Cameron said in the past about pursuing this, um, the, the goalposts are wide open still. Yeah, um, the goalposts are wide open. I think if, if from a UK perspective, the thing that we still haven't grappled with uh, in the UK is that we we are at the center of a global financial system. In other words, we have a global responsibility, not just the responsibility to police the city of London, but to police all the assets that the UK has that are used by those that want to move illicit finance around the world. So yes, uh, overseas territories and crown dependencies. Yes, law firms, accountancy firms, the real estate market in London, which is obviously a great place to invest your money, uh, the private school system, which is a great place to spend your, your money. Um, and of course, the, the, the criminals benefit from the fact that 
um, the world is very balkanized. So, you know, the UK looks at the UK, Germany looks at Germany, Singapore looks at Singapore. But what about the connections between countries? That's where the money is moving. Uh, and so inevitably, the authorities are always uh, one step behind. Tom, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Tom Keating with us, Director, Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RISI. Ahead on the show, ticked off, find out why one Chinese state-backed newspaper is accusing the US of robbery. More after the break. And of course, for all the latest on the big market moves that we saw to the close yesterday and what is happening around potential fresh lockdowns for the pandemic, do tune in to the podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Well, let's focus on this TikTok story then. Let's see if we can get some clarity as to what's actually happening here, because the latest has the Global Times. This is uh, effectively a state-backed media outlet uh, suggesting that Beijing will block the latest uh, TikTok deal that would have seen Oracle and Walmart become joint owners of a new business called uh, TikTok Global. Uh, the uh, a new company would have been uh, based in the United States and uh, Oracle and Walmart would have shared a 20% stake. But the Global Times has described the deal as, quote, robbery and uh, opposing the terms uh, that would see uh, Americans take four out of five board seats and Oracle to access the popular video apps source code. So let's bring uh, Arjun into the conversation from Guangzhou. Uh, Arjun, this isn't um, obviously official reaction from Beijing, but it probably gives us a good sense of how the Chinese leaders feel about the way this deal is structured. I thought yesterday they were suggesting that the um, subsidiary status of this business would give ByteDance control. Yeah, Jeff, it's all uh, over the last 24 hours. A few comments have been made by the president, which I'll get into in a moment, as well as Oracle as well. One of the companies that will take a minority stake in TikTok Global. It really comes down to all the parties involved now really trying to spin this deal in a way that makes it look favorable for their own side, their own base. Now, I'll just start off firstly with President Trump's comments yesterday on Fox News, where he said that Oracle and Walmart would have total control over TikTok Global. Global. He also said the Chinese have nothing to do with it. Now, that, those statements are not true. And in fact, I'll get into why. Oracle then follow up, followed up and said the Americans would have a majority ownership of TikTok Global and ByteDance will have no ownership. And ByteDance, meanwhile, coming out and saying it's going to have 80% ownership of the company. Now, it all comes down to how both of these parties, Oracle and ByteDance, view their stakes in TikTok Global. Now, Oracle is, uh, is able to say that this will be majority American-owned for a couple of reasons. 
seats. Firstly, the board seats. Four out of five of those board seats will go to Americans. That final seat will go to ByteDance founder Zhang Yiming, who is, of course, Chinese. Now, the other thing they point to as well is the venture capital money behind ByteDance. Around 40% of ByteDance is owned by US VCs. Now, if ByteDance is owning 80% of this company, you tackle on the 40% of the VCs plus uh, the Oracle and the Walmart stake, that tips over US money behind TikTok Global above 50%, allowing Oracle to claim that it was majority American-owned. So some, some pretty complicated maths in there as well. Now, the other thing here is Oracle doesn't see ByteDance as an entity having a direct stake in TikTok Global. Instead, it sees ByteDance's shareholders, the VCs, investors, etc., having a stake in the TikTok global entity, therefore claiming that ByteDance doesn't have ownership of the company. Meanwhile, ByteDance is not separating its investor base, its shareholders from its entity when it says that it has an 80% stake in this final TikTok global company. So it really is a difference here in terms of the way that they're viewing the deal, the way they're trying to explain the deal to their respective uh, customers. I mean, it's no surprise that ByteDance yesterday released a Chinese language statement here. One thing that is for sure is that when President Trump says Oracle and Walmart will have uh, total control and when they they say that there will be no Chinese involvement. That is not correct, of course. Zhang Yiming, founder of CEO of ByteDance, will be on the board. And of course, uh, he will have a board seat. And of course, ByteDance's shareholders will be involved in the deal as well. So uh, that's the state of play right now. One tiny little thing left, of course, is Beijing still needs to green light this deal. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.